Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. God speaks to us today from Galatians chapter 5, 22 to 24, Philippians chapter 4, 4 to 8. 聖靈所結的果子，就是仁愛、喜樂、和平、忍耐、恩慈、良善、信實、温柔、節制。這樣的事沒有律法禁止。凡屬基督耶穌的人，是已經把肉體連肉體的邪情私慾同釘在十字架上了。你們要靠主常常喜樂。我再說，你們要喜樂。当叫众人知道你们谦让的心，主已经近了，应当一无挂虑，只要凡事藉着祷告、祈求和感谢，将你们所要的告诉神。神所赐出人意外的平安，必在基督耶稣里保守你们的心怀意念。弟兄们，我们还有未尽的话，凡是真实的、可敬的、公义的。清潔的、可愛的、有美名的，若有什麼德行，若有什麼稱讚，這些事你們都要思念。The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.、Uh, in the 1870s,、uh, a man named Horatio Spofford、uh, suffered some deeply traumatic experiences in very quick succession. Maybe some of you know the story. Uh, but Horatio, he first lost his four-year-old son,、uh, who died. Then,、uh, not too soon after, was the Great Chicago Fire, which devastated his business and his livelihood.、Uh, then, a couple years later, he and his family they needed to travel to England,、uh, and so、uh, because he had some business to finalize in Chicago before he could go on, he sent his family ahead of him to England, intending to meet them there. Uh, but as his family crossed the Atlantic, the ship that his family was on sank, and all four of his daughters died. His wife was the only one who survived. Of course,、uh, being in Chicago, he quickly left to try and meet his grieving wife, who was now in England. And as he was doing so, he actually took a, a route to、uh, to England across the Atlantic that brought him very close to where his daughters had died. And as he passed by their watery graves, he wrote a prayer that would become a very famous hymn. The opening lines of that hymn read, "When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, 'It is well, it is well with my soul.'" What is that? What takes someone in the midst of quite literally some of the deepest grief that a person can endure—the loss of their children—to write words like "Whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul." What gave him that kind of confidence? What gave him that kind of peace? Well, if you've been with us,、uh, we've been in the middle of a series called "The Fruit,"、uh, and in this series, we've been looking at Galatians five. 
uh, very slowly over the course of the whole summer in order to see what is required uh, for growth and the development of Christian character. And over the last couple of weeks, we've started focusing specifically on the fruit of the Spirit. Thus far, in the fruit of the Spirit, we've taken a look at what biblical love is. We've taken a look at what biblical joy is. And this week, we want to consider biblical peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's the kind of peace that allows us, even in the midst of sorrow, to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now, to understand uh, this biblical peace, uh, I want to reconsider a couple of things that we've already seen in Galatians 5, and then I want to shift to taking a look at really like one of the go-to passages uh, on biblical peace, which is in uh, uh, Philippians 4. But let's, let's see what we can learn about biblical peace by considering these three things. First, the expectations for peace, the mindset for peace, and then finally, the guardian for peace. All right, so first, uh, the expectations for peace. I want to start uh, by remembering something that we said a few weeks ago. Uh, if you remember, we laid out for a couple of weeks, we were laying out the foundations for what is required uh, for spiritual growth. And we said that it requires being rooted in Jesus and that we needed, to, we needed to see the freedom and experience the freedom that can only be found in Jesus, but that also we need to expect that spiritual growth, growth in Christian character, it's a spiritual battle. There's going to be a spiritual battle related to growing because there's going to be a spiritual battle against what we saw was the patterns of this world against the flesh. And what we said is that if we're going to expect to grow in the Christian life, we need to come expecting that we will experience some kind of resistance. And in order to, experience, or in order to walk through uh, that battle, we needed to walk with the Spirit. That, I'll summarize, that's basically what we said. If you want to hear more about that, you can uh, go back and listen to the sermons. But the reason why I start here is because entering spiritual growth, knowing that there is a spiritual battle, means having proper expectations about what is coming in life. Setting proper expectations in general in life drastically changes how we deal with whatever it is that's going to come. It's foundational for being able to deal with life circumstances. And this is especially true as it relates to peace that we may or may not experience in our life. If peace is an element of the fruit of the Spirit, and there is a spiritual battle to be waged for that growth, then we'd best believe that to experience peace, we must come with proper expectations about what's to come. Because here's what I have found to be true and what I think Paul is getting at in Philippians 4 is that peace is the opposite of anxiety, which he mentions there in, in, uh, in the passage. And that anxiety often comes in our lives when our vision and our expectations of life misalign with the realities of life. Peace requires proper expectations about what lies ahead. Let me give you an example of what this might look like practically in some of our lives. And over the years, I've worked in, worked in and I've pastored in uh, some very different uh, city contexts here in New York. And so as a result, I've gotten to see various ways that people tend to interact with and relate to the city. Uh, as an example, when I was a youth pastor up in the Bronx, most of the youth uh, that we had within our, uh, within our group, they were born and raised in the Bronx. They never had really known anything different and so for them, it's interesting, having grown up in the city, the goal, like the main goal, was to get a job 
and live it up in the suburbs. Because the suburbs were like this promised land for many of them. And we'd always encourage that. Like, yes, go do it. Go experience it. And many of them did. But what's interesting now, you know, looking back on many years later, I'm not kidding when I say that most of them who went to go try out the suburbs have either come back or they're planning on coming back. Why? Well, because for some of them, they had really wrong assumptions and misaligned expectations about suburban living. Right? For those of you that maybe have lived in the suburbs, you know the suburbs require a car for everything. And if you're a New York City kid, that blows your mind. You can't even imagine. If you've grown up in the suburbs, you know the streets and the neighborhoods get really quiet and really creepy. For a city kid, neighbors insist in the suburbs that you do not cross their property lines. Good Lord, if you cross a property line in the suburbs, people bug out. For a city kid, the idea that you get to have your own property that no one gets to intersect with. And then on top of that, of course, there's this constant need in the suburbs to acquire more and more and more stuff that just fills all the extra space that you have in this massive house for a kid that's grown up in a tiny New York City apartment. And so for some, it's just too much. Why? Because their expectations did not match the reality of the suburbs. But I've also seen the other end of the spectrum. I have seen many people from outside the city move into the city with all the enthusiasm and gusto and intention to spend their entire lives here. But then three years later, they leave defeated and burned out. Why? Wrong expectations. The apartments are too small. There was no uh, personal outdoor space. There was no in-unit laundry. Schools were too complicated. Parking was a nightmare. And for some, the only way that they could alleviate such inconveniences was to spend an enormous amount of money to get all of these different amenities, money that they just couldn't maintain. And so after a while, they left frustrated and burned out. Because for many, why? Why did that happen? Their expectations did not match the reality of the city. However, do you know what makes city living possible? And actually, do you know what makes moving from the city into the suburbs uh, possible for that matter? Is that in order to kill that anxiety, in order to kill that discord, it really requires people, especially coming in to the city, to redefine the good life. Meaning, you gotta set proper expectations about what the good life is. When having proper expectations of life, you can then approach life with a sense of soberness, can't you? Because you've thought through, listen, this isn't going to be easy. It's not going to be great. It's going to be hard. And when we properly assess such things and we properly assess what we're going to face, we then know that there are going to be troubles ahead. And we settle for ourselves. Troubles are going to be ahead of me. And so then we can approach life with this greater sense of peace. If you don't expect turbulent seas, then your peace will be shaken by every wave that comes. But if you set sail prepared for the storm, though you may have some concerns, you will still have a sense of peace because you know that you'll be ready for whatever it is that might come. We need to develop a, a mindset that helps us build that kind of expectation so that we can prepare well. Peace requires 
proper expectations. I've said that probably about 15 times now. I hope we hear that. Because hardships are going to come. Uncertainties in life are going to come. We need to have this kind of mindset. The question, of course, then, how do we develop, develop that kind of mindset, right? So if we need to have these expectations, this mindset, what is the mindset for peace? Let's consider that. So I want to give you uh, some summary thoughts on what uh, Paul lays out in our passage in Philippians 4. Uh, before I do, let me, let me just say first that what I'm about to lay out for you is one of the ways that I think that we can experience peace and avoid some of the anxieties, but I think Paul really nails the kinds of rhythms that we need to experience or that we need to have in order to experience peace. Let me lay this out for you. A mindset of peace, from what I see here in Philippians 4, requires an interweaving of three things. You ready? Here they are. First, a consistent rejoicing in salvation. I'll explain what I mean by that. A consistent prayer and petition. And then finally, a consistent remembrance of blessings. Let me quickly explain to you what I mean by all three of those. So a mindset of peace requires first this consistent rejoicing in salvation. Uh, To frame how we ought to resist anxiety in our passage and experience peace, Paul starts off by saying this in verse four. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let me pause there for a second. We should point out that Paul is writing this book. This is known as one of the prison epistles. He's writing this book in prison. So Paul is currently about to face death. And so for him, in the midst of these uh, circumstances, Paul is emphatic that regardless of his situation, he must rejoice. And he calls other people to do the same. Rejoice in all circumstances. Now, if you were here with us last week, you'll remember uh, that we looked at rejoicing. We looked at this idea of joy, which is, um, it's rooted in the same word, rejoice and rejoicing. We looked at what it looks like. And if you recall, we said that biblical joy is rooted in the gracious gift of God's love that results in gratitude that deepens our faith so that we might persevere to maturity, right? That's what we said about biblical joy. So rejoicing isn't necessarily feeling exuberance, but rather a habit of gratitude for the gracious gift of God's love in Christ. A mindset of peace requires a regular remembrance of this very thing. It requires a remembrance of God's salvation, of his love for us. And so the first thing we have to remember is if you're going to experience peace, it requires reflecting and remembering God's salvation, his love for us. But the second thing that we see here that Paul lays out is that it also requires this consistent prayer and petition. Look at verse 6. Paul, after talking about rejoicing, then turns and says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And what what does that mean? See, a mindset of peace starts with rejoicing, but then moves to prayer and petition. It's a a means uh, by which we're able to name and bring before God the very things that are causing us the anxieties in life. God is concerned with our concerns. He desires for us to bring those to him with honest petitions for our needs, all while rejoicing in our salvation. And I note this explicitly because as a pastor and as one who talks with a lot of people and had certainly in my own personal life experienced this, I have found that we tend to err in one of two ways when it comes to considering our real anxieties in life. I have found that 
One way that people can err is that they actually don't take seriously the extent to which the anxieties of life are worth processing out loud and speaking the challenges that, they, challenges that they face in life. And what I mean by that is I have found that some, when they experience anxieties or struggles in life, they somehow assume that those anxieties or the struggles are the result of a lack of faith or God's displeasure with them or an attack of the enemy or just not worth noting at all because no one really cares and no one really wants to hear and as I've said, as a result, for many, they just they bury it. They try to ignore it. They don't acknowledge it. But we're told here, by prayer and petition, to present our requests to God. Meaning, we can be honest and open and vulnerable about our anxieties. But I've also seen the, an, another error. The other way that I've seen people err is that they will... They're perfectly fine with prayer and petition. They're perfectly fine making known their struggles and their anxieties. But I have seen many times that prayer and petition also come with anger and bitterness or resentment and frustration. They are very honest with their anxieties and they bring them before God, but they do so shaking their fist at God. Angry that those struggles are in their life. I gotta say, that's not it either. Because a mindset of peace requires a consistent prayer life where that is honest and vulnerable, prayers and petitions before the Lord, but then also is filled with a gratitude and a rejoicing, as we just said, with the goodness of God. These things interweave. The final thing that I think a mindset of peace requires, though, is what we'll call a consistent remembrance of blessings. How does one rejoice in the gracious gifts of God while also bringing the anxieties and struggles of life, look at verse 8. Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. What is that? I mean, a mindset of peace will require that we are regularly thinking about, yes, the difficult things in life, but also thinking about the things in our lives that are noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. There are hardships in life, but there are also daily blessings and daily graces, graces that are given to us if we would just have eyes to see them. And sometimes those daily blessings and those graces are interwoven with the pain that we experience in life. Meaning several, just as an example, several years, several years ago, uh, Anderson Cooper was interviewing, I can't talk, interviewing Stephen Colbert, uh, and they were connecting, maybe some of you saw this interview, but they were connecting and bonding over the effects of having lost both of their fathers at very, very young ages, uh, and then as a result, having in many ways to be the stabilizing force, even at 10, for their mothers, who had just lost their husbands. And the reality for both of them is that they would both say, yes, that death and the life that then came completely changed the trajectories of their lives. This really painful hardship changed the trajectories. And then in a really tender moment, and I would really encourage you to Google this but, uh, to, in, um, to watch it, but I, this really tender moment between Anderson Cooper and Stephen Colbert, um, who, by the way, it's important just to note, Colbert is a, a deeply committed Catholic Christian 
um, Cooper is reminding Colbert of something that he had said and in a previous uh, interview. And Colbert said this about his dad dying and Cooper was reading it to Colbert. But Steve, uh, Stephen Colbert said, I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. And then in response, as Anderson was pushing Stephen to explain what he meant by that, Stephen says this, it is a gift to exist and with existence comes suffering. I don't want it to, have to happen, but if you are grateful for your life, and I'm not always, but if you are, you need to be grateful for all of it. And what do you get from loss? You get awareness of other people's loss, which allows you to connect with that other person, which allows you to love more deeply, if it is true that all people suffer. And it makes you grateful that you suffered so that you can know that about other people as well. I want to be the most human I can be and that involves acknowledging and ultimately being grateful even for the things I wish didn't happen because they gave me a gift. And then he ends with this. And he said, in my tradition, that is the great sacrifice of Christ, that God does it too. You are not alone. God does it too. Now, what is all of that for Colbert? See, Colbert is, he's remembering the sacrifice and the salvation of Jesus. That's where he ended, right? He's remembering what God in Christ did. While honestly acknowledging the broken realities of life, realities that he wished did not happen. And yet still, in the midst of all of that, he sees the blessing of life by thinking on that which was excellent and praiseworthy. I mean, Colbert's response is Philippians 4 to a T. Now, in my own life and as a pastor who, again, meets with people regularly struggling with various things, I have found this to be one of the most crucial aspects of our faith journey, being able to do this kind of thing, to be able to see and do what Colbert is describing here. Life is tough, and there are numerous ways that we're going to struggle Various reasons for anxiety, but there are also countless graces that we miss if we do not let ourselves remember. Even in the midst of life's most difficult times, there can be peace. And I know that for many, when life gets hard, it can be really hard to see that peace. The anxieties of life can very quickly take over our lives. I realize that. But there is power in our ability to stop and to breathe and to think on the ways that God has been gracious, the ways that mercies have been new every morning, thinking on such things doesn't take the struggles away, but it does remind us of God's faithfulness in the midst of it. I have said this to myself numerous times over the course of this year, and I have said it to many of you over the course of this year, and you're probably gonna know exactly what I, who you are, but I've said this repeatedly. God has been faithful in the past. And here are all the ways that I have seen his goodness in the past. Name them. And because I've seen him to be faithful then, why would I not trust that he's going to be faithful into the future? I've had to remind myself of that over and over and over again in the midst of a very anxiety-ridden, painful year. And I said, you know, all this, this weaves together because this mindset of peace that we're talking about, it brings those real concerns to the Lord 
but it also remembers his salvation. It also remembers that which is excellent and praiseworthy, the ways that he has been good and faithful, even in the midst of difficult trying times. And as I've thought about that idea, as I've thought about what it means to trust the Lord, even in the midst of difficult and painful circumstances, as I've sat with that, (laughs) it's struck me. It struck me beautiful that there is one, the one who draws us together that knows exactly what it is to trust the Lord, even in the midst of painful circumstances, the one in whom we find peace. I mean, Jesus Christ knows exactly this experience. Look at verse seven. The verse seven, I've, I've been sitting with verse seven quite a bit. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've been sitting with that, processing what that exactly means. And this is the specific thing that stuck with me. This idea that peace will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. How is peace a guardian in Christ? Let's consider that finally. You know, I came across uh, one biblical commentator as I was thinking about this, um, that statement. Uh, and I wanted to straight up read for you what this biblical commentator said. Hear, hear these words. He said, God's peace will mount guard at the door of heart and thought. It will also prevent unworthy reasonings from entering thought life. The man or woman of trust and prayer has entered the impregnable citadel from which no one can dislodge him. And the name of that fortress is Jesus Christ. It reminds me of Psalm 118 that says that the Lord is our fortified tower. See, the peace of God Here's what I think all this means. The peace of God, the peace that comes through the the faithfulness of God reminds us of the fortress, of the strong tower in which we find ourselves as Christians. For those who trust in Jesus, you have a strong tower against which no storm, no trial, no pain, no uncertainty has any power. Jesus Christ is the one who calms the storms. He's the one who heals the sick. He's the one who holds the future. He's the one in Mark 9 who's in the midst of a storm who stands up and says, peace be still, and the storm settles. But at the same time, remember what Colbert said, that the beauty of Christianity is that Jesus is not just the one who holds all power and authority. He's also the one who has suffered He's also the one who has experienced the storm, the one who has felt the pain, and the one who has had to trust the purposes of God, purposes of the Father, in the midst of it all. You know, the the night before the cross, do you remember Jesus' prayer, his words to the Father? In Luke 22, you can see Jesus, he's struggling. And he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. What is that? That is Jesus bringing in prayer and petition, his situation and struggles before the Father. You know, is there any way that the storm can pass from me, Father? But then he goes on to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. What is that? That's Jesus trusting the faithfulness of the Father. That's Jesus Christ, the one who is the strong tower, 
not using this power to avoid the struggles of life, but entering into them for our sake so that we can then be found in him so that we now can have this fortified structure and tower and strength around us. It's what it means to be unified by faith in Jesus. The cross of Christ certainly shows the extent to which we needed a savior, but also shows the extent to which he was willing to identify with his people, those who profess him as a savior. And the resurrection, the resurrection shows us that he's not just a suffering savior, but he's also a conquering king. The one who holds all power, the one who raises from the dead, again, on our behalf. And the peace that God gives to those who trust in Jesus, it guards us against questioning the goodness and love and compassion and power of our strong tower, Jesus. And so when the storms of life come, I do wonder, what allows us, like Horatio Spofford, to speak words like, it is well, it is well with my soul? What is it that in in the storms of life are going to allow us, like Stephen Colbert, to be able to say, I will choose to be grateful even for the things I wish didn't happen. How do we get to that kind of peace and trust? That peace and that trust comes in the same way that it came to both of them to know that our Savior has suffered, identifies with our pain, a Savior that has died for us, proving his love for us, but also the Savior who is powerful enough to calm the storms, demanding the ravaging ways to be still. And even more, a savior who is risen from the dead, proving that in the end, even the brutality of death cannot stop him and his redemptive, restorative plans. And so may the peace that guards us in Christ lead us to consistently say, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, and the peace that you accomplish in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we can be confident in knowing that you are a God who um, sees us in our pain, that you're a God that did not leave us alone in the midst of that pain that you sent your son to experience that pain and those struggles in order that we might have hope beyond them. For as we look on Jesus, we not only see a crucified savior, we also see a resurrected one, our strong tower. Give us eyes to see, give us a mindset that experiences the peace that comes by faith in Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.